So asking for help is probably one of the hardest things, right? I can own that. I, I was just going through a kitchen remodel. There's many times some of you out there, I see some of your faces. I've had to ask you for help. I appreciate you helping me. Um, I, uh, I've learned that I'm very bad at asking for help, uh, and I need to do it more and more. Um, and it's more than just like, you know, everybody struggles with it, right? It's not just men like needing to ask for directions. Like everybody struggles to ask for help. Um, and there's a lot of reasons probably why we don't ask for help. Um, you might attribute it to pride, right? But pride manifests itself in different ways, sometimes little sneaky ways that we don't often think of, right? Not only the haughty pride that says, I'm too good for you, or I don't need you, there's also that humble pride, right? It says, I'm too much of a mess for you. You can't handle this. Um, I exalt myself over you and your help because my mess is just too much. Humble pride says, I'm too messed up for you. Haughty pride says, I, uh, you are not, you're too messed up for me, right? I don't need you. But either way, we use these masks, and our pride covers our shame, covers our true helplessness, our neediness, our dependence, and we don't ask for help. And asking for help, as we'll see today, is the gateway to rescue. Asking for help is the gateway to rescue, to strengthening and empowering by God and commissioning by God. But we need to ask for it. We need to ask for help. So the ma- I'm actually going to give you the main idea right now. It's at the bottom of your outline. I'm just going to give it to you right now. So we know where we're going. It's a lot of text. The main point is that God hears us, God rescues us, and unites us to the victory of the king. God hears us, he rescues us, he unites us to the victory of the king. That's really how this psalm is laid out. Um, and this psalm is uh, actually almost word for word from Second uh, Samuel 22. Literally word for word, except for like maybe three or four. So Second Samuel 22 is David's song rejoicing over all the victory that God provided him for. Um, and, it, and it really, Psalm 20, Second Samuel, a lot of S's here. Second Samuel 21 lays out all these victories over David's life. And then the victories of his sons and things like that. Um, and Second Samuel 22 is sort of a response to that. And then it makes it into the psalm. So, um, so the question really, as we get back into psalms, just want to reorient us as we read the psalms for the next uh, few months here. How do we read the psalms as Christian scripture, right? Uh, they were not written directly to us, but it's for us. It's clearly for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit passed down. Um, these are, this is the songbook of God's people, the prayers of millions that have been uttered throughout centuries, right? So how do we apply them now? Uh, we're going to see passages about God's faithfulness, but it's to David and David's covenant or Israel and their covenant. How do we apply that now, right? Um, what about the defeat of enemies? Like that can be kind of edgy, right? Like uh, crushing the enemies. Oh, I got some people I want God to crush, right? How do we think about that? How do we think about David or other psalmists sort of praising themselves, saying, I'm blameless, I'm, I'm uh, perfect, or I'm, I'm clean, right, before God. How do we process that? These are all questions we have to be thinking of. And so a way to just, and again, we're going to have to crank through this, so just putting this all out there, when we apply passages about God's faithfulness, we have to think about it through the lens of the new covenant in Christ. Christ's faithfulness to us despite our imperfections, right, despite our failures, um, God is faithful to us because of the salvation in Christ. Uh, when we read about the psalmist exalting how they're blameless, right, we have to remember that it's ultimately we're blameless because of the merit of Jesus. When we hear them crushing, about desiring, asking God to crush their enemies, you got to be real careful, right? Um, 
as we read it as Christians, what do we know from the New Testament? That we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We wrestle against the powers of Satan, sin, and death. Those are our deepest, darkest enemies. Those are the uh, most important enemies, and God has promised to defeat them in Christ. And so it's not your coworker, the politician you hate, right? Um, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, ultimately. And that, that's how we have to, to look at these things. Um, and so we have to remember these things. Remember who our enemies are. Don't, that we have to remember who God's, what God promises us in Christ, uh, where our righteousness comes from. And so as we're going to read this, we're going to see the pattern here of a problem that David has, um, God's solution, and then how that solution uh, shapes him, right, and changes him. And I think that's just a way to look at all Scripture, right? We come to Scripture, what's the problem? What's, what's the fallen condition? Whether it's sin, brokenness, suffering, what's the problem? What's God going to do about it? And then how does that action of God shape me and change me, right? When we come first, what do I need to do, God? Tell me, tell me. Um, that's not how we read Scripture. We're called to first observe God's saving acts, right? To observe, own the issues in us, the problem in us, and how God takes care of it. And then we're shaped and formed more into the image of Christ. And so we're going to be um, looking at this, asking these questions today as we go through this. And um, of course, David, 3,000 years removed from us, his, the way that he's going to be um, asking for help and the way that uh, he frames it is going to be different than us, but it's still the same God. And that's what's so amazing, right? Still the same God, same rescuing God, saving God. And ultimately, we see the salvation in Christ. And so we're just going to rejoice in that this morning. So let's jump in. Uh, that first introductory part is actually part of the scriptures there. For the choir director of the servant of the Lord, David, who spoke the words of this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from the grasp of all his enemies and from the power of Saul. So it seems like he's saying, you know, not only Saul, but it's all of his enemies. I think just it's a reflection on his life, right? And he said, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, where I seek refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I called out to the Lord in my distress. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. So first we see an appeal to God amidst affliction. Appeal to God. Cry out to God amidst your uh, affliction. So really, if you wanted the Cliff Notes version of this psalm, you really just have verses 1 through 3. That's it, right? Um, there's praise of God. There is a, a problem, right? Uh, he had enemies. I was saved from my enemies. I called out, and God rescued me. That's it. So I could stop there, but I think uh, it's really important to keep going because I think it's beautiful how he develops it. But that's really the, the basis of it all, right? And we notice here in the first few verses all these words, and we could spend so much time, but we can't, but so many words about God being his defense, right? His uh, rock, right, where he seeks refuge, the shield, all protection. And then we see this phrase here, the horn of uh, my salvation. And you might think of that as like the musical horn, um, but really it's actually an offensive weapon. Uh, it's actually like symbolizing the horn of an ox that goes and fights. 
Um, throughout the Old Testament, it's the imagery there. And so there's a few verses here. Psalm 92 says, um, Indeed, Lord, your enemies will perish. The evildoers will be scattered. You had lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. Um, or, for example, Micah 4.13 says, Rise and thresh, daughter Zion. I will make your horn like iron, your hooves bronze, so you can crush your enemies. Um, and so there, there's a few references there to the horn of the salvation. So it's not only defensive, but it's offensive. And you might remember that the pages of the New Testament, we come to Luke 1 and Zechariah, when he's finally able to speak, he says in Luke 1.69, and this is in your uh, bulletin there, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. And what's this related to? Salvation from our enemies, from the hands of those who hate us. So as Christians reading this psalm, right, we should be thinking in reference to God's salvation in Christ. Uh, salvation from our deepest enemies, right? Sin, Satan, death, the things that are out to get us. And so... Again, we see the problem here. The world is scary, right? We have enemies. Um, we're in distress. Being in distress doesn't mean necessarily that you're sinning. Uh, it's just that you're in distress. Um, what we do with distress is where we can fall apart, right? But we have distress. Um, the threat of death is very real. And so what's the solution we see? And this will be throughout the rest of the Psalms that we can cry to God, right? God is accessible. It says, he heard my cry. He heard my voice. It reached his ears. It actually gets there. Our cries make it to God. Um, he hears us. And not only does he hear us, he can do something about it, right? He provides. God is strong. God is a protector. God defends. God defeats our enemies. And so how is this going to shape us? Well, we see his love for God. We see that he's responding with, um, with praise but it also shapes us as people who need God, who cry out to God. For you to cry out to God, you what? Need to ask for help. You need to know that you need help, right? So this psalm not only shapes us to worship God, and cry, but cry out to him and own our dependence on him. This cry, this word, it's not just like uh, pulling over, hey, I need directions, can you help? No, it's like it's a guttural cry for help. It's not just like something inconvenient is happening, like, He's dying. He needs help. He is in a deep, dark pit. Something is going on. And really, in his life, there was multiple situations where that happened. And I'm just wondering for you, for me, are, how in tune are we with our real plight? Like, when sin is knocking at the door, we're in, when we're struggling with temptation. If we don't see the fact of that our enemies around us calling us to um, be tempted to stray. When we don't see our plight, we're not going to ask for help. How in tune are we with the actual seriousness of the fall all around us? The, the effects of the fall that are devastating, that are painful, that will bring us um, relational brokenness with God and others. How in tune are we to that? Are we really uh, going to cry out to God if we don't think we need help? So this awareness around the, the plight, right? We see in verse 4 to 6, the ropes of death trap, terrified, you know, I'm terrified. Um, the ropes of Sheol, this idea of death surrounding him, right? Death is the ultimate enemy surrounding him. And so he cries out. He's aware of that, and he cries out to God. So when temptation surrounds you and you're overwhelmed, remember that 
God is available. God is accessible. God hears you. And as we're going to see, God can do something about it. So verse 7 to 15, I'll read. Just let your imagination kind of, your sanctified imagination sort of get this image in your head and just be in awe of the warrior God responding here. The earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He bent the heavens and came down. Total darkness beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place. Storm clouds, his canopy around him. From the radiance of his presence, his clouds swept onward with hail and blazing coals. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High made his voice heard. He shot his arrows and scattered them. He hurled lightning bolts and routed them. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed. At your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Well, yeah, it's fair to say David's being a bit poetic, right, as he reflects on his life. Um, When Saul attacked him, for example, he didn't get struck by lightning and the earth didn't open up, right? He's being poetic here, but really, this is a reflection, again, on all the instances in his life, as we saw from the introduction to the psalm there, um, on the day when God rescued David, not only from Saul, but over all his enemies. And so, from, probably say from Goliath all, all the way on down, um, all those victories. So in a sense, he's saying, this is, he's imaging how God responds to his people, to him, in distress. And when they cry out, God responds. And, you know, you could, you could, we could break down all the beautiful parallelism here and the the, the image of the creator coming and the creation is just trembling and shaking, right? Um, Fire coming from his mouth, bending the heavens. I don't even know like what that looks like, but uh, darkness, this mysterious darkness, right? That that God, we can't see him and it's darkness and it's mysterious and it's coming. Um, You know, breathing fire, Riding a cherub, I hope that that really def- redefines for you what a cherub means. Like, so in the middle of February, when you see naked angels shooting hearts, that is not a cherub, right? Um, if that doesn't redefine cherub, I don't know what will. Um, this breathtaking view of God, the warrior uh, def- and defender. And so, I'll jump right to the spiritual formation question, right? You have enemies. You have this warrior God at your disposal to help you. But why don't we cry out to him? He's on our team. He's there. He's ready and willing to fight for us. Um, He's definitely someone that uh, we want to trust in and and take advantage of of his power. It leaves us in awe, yes. We read through it, and explaining it probably takes away from it. Just, Just read through it again and again. It leaves us in awe, but it also causes us to say, I want to, to cry out to him. I want to ask that guy for help. So he can really do something about it. He can do something about my problems. He can do something about my sin. When you're in the midst of distress, when you're in the midst of temptation to lash out in anger, to lash out in frustration, bitterness, to act out in lust, whatever it might be, God is ready and willing to help and to fight for you. We just have to recognize that we need help. We ask the warrior God for help, 
in our battle, he will respond. And he only, not only responds in that way, we see that the rescuing God responds. Verse 16, he reached down from on high and took a hold of me. This beautiful image, he pulled me out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me. Why? For they were too strong for me. He recognizes his weakness here. They confronted me on the day of my calamity, right? The worst day of my life. I'm talking about the ter- a terrible time, right? But the Lord was my support. He brought me out to a spacious place and rescued me. It's really important. He rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. So the God sort of changes hats here, goes from the warrior to sort of, a, I imagine, like a first responder, right? Um, like a lifeguard, right? Pulling a drowning person out of the water. Overwhelming, though, the powerful enemy, supporting us in the day of the, the when life is hardest, the day of calamity. Bringing us to the safe and spacious place. Why? Because he delighted. He delights in us. And the takeaway from God here as rescuer is similar to the first, right? He's available. It's at our disposal. We just have to ask. It's complete and powerful, but this image is elevated because we see his heart behind the rescue. He delights in doing this. And this shapes us, I think, in a few ways. Right? We need it. It's just enemies are too powerful. We, we can't rescue ourselves. And so we're, we have to, it shapes us in the fact that it, we have to own our dependence. Right? We see our plight. It is dire. We need rescue. And his rescue is awe-inspiring. And we respond in worship to him. It's breathtaking. It's sweeping. It's exhaustive. We can't help but then be humbled by it. Right? Can't help but be humbled we need this much help, <laughs> right? It takes a lot of effort to save us, doesn't it? Um, but we could also take that in the wrong direction. Say, oh, I'm such a piece of junk. Uh, we turn that humility inward into self-loathing, right? Um, God must be so sick of strapping that saddle on the cherub and riding down and saving me. His arms might be tired from chucking lightning bolts, Right? Think of that lifeguard as a kid. I always thought lifeguards were so cool, but they're so aloof. They're like all up there, their sunglasses looking real cool, right? And so annoyed. It's like the stupid kid swimming in the deep end. He can't swim. He knows he can't swim, but there he goes again. I'm going to go save him. Here I go, right? It's not God. It's not God. Why does he do it? He rescued me because he delighted in me. As a father delights in his child, God delights in rescuing us. He'll do it again and again and again. So don't let that humility that should come turn inward into self-loathing because then you won't ask for help. I'm not worth it. Uh, Don't worry about it. I'm fine. Right? That humble pride. I don't need it. That self-loathing turns and we don't ask for help. And uh, we forget that important truth that God delights in doing this. He delights in us. That's why Jesus came. He came willingly, as Hebrews says, for the joy that was before him. He endured the cross, right? It was his joy. What joy? The glory it brought God, the rescue, and what that rescue brought is fellowship with us because it was broken. The rescue that God, uh, that, that came in the fellowship that Jesus enjoys with his creatures, the joy that was before him, he endured the cross. Jesus delighted in doing that. His identity, his purpose, he delighted in that. It was his joy to do that. And this truth, God's delight in us, is surprising 
And it, and it leads to another surprising way that God responds. The third way God responds here is not only does he rescue us, he, he's the warrior, the rescuer, he also rewards us, surprisingly, right? This might surprise us here. Let's read verse 20. The Lord rewards me, rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not turned from my wickedness, to, to, from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me. I have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless toward him and kept myself from iniquity. So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Wow, Dave, that's, that's a bit arrogant. I don't know. Like, I, I, we all know what you did with Bathsheba, right? Like, come on. Like, what, what is going on? How can he say this, <laughs> right? Um, it, you know, a guy who murdered, you know, a, a guy and, and took his wife, you know. Um, I don't know. I, there's plenty of other things we can point to as well. So here's the, so we could talk just about David for a second. How can David just say this in his context? And I think the idea is he's looking back over his life. And what do we see with the kings, right? We see the kings turning to idolatry, turning their nation to idolatry. And David did not do that. David kept, and he was a man after God's own heart, and he pursued God, and God was pleased with that. Even when he failed epically, what did he do? We have Psalm 51, where he turned to God and followed his law, and with regard to asking for forgiveness and uh, making those sacrifices, doing the things he needed to do to establish that. And so there is a sense in which the trajectory of David's life was faithful. You can look back and say, yes, I did not... um, I did not send Israel into idolatry and, and things like that. Um, so God's rules were, were generally adhered to, but we can't help but feel the tension, right? You can't help but feel the tension when you reread this, right? Um, the only person who can ever say this perfectly is who? It's Jesus, right? The true king. The true king, Jesus. The true son of David. I think back on, um, actually preached Psalm 16, back when we were doing psalms before, and, and there's a phrase in there that um, you won't let your holy one see corruption, David says. And yet David was die- that's talking about death, body corrupting in the ground. And he did, right? He died. And Peter points that out and says, clearly, this is talking about Jesus. Because the real, true holy one did not see corruption. Jesus um, rose from the dead. And so I think there's a way in which we see David as a type, as, a, the, true, as the king back then, a, a, perfect, a great example of a king, but not the perfect one, pointing forward to the true perfect king who can say, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. Um, I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have I've been blameless. And what's so beautiful is that because of our identity, trusting by, in, by faith in Christ, we can say that that's true of us as well, only because of the work of Christ, right? You know, Romans 3, the righteousness of God has been revealed, uh, and the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That righteousness is for us because we are connected to the Messiah by faith. And this reward we receive before the judgment seat is only because of the merit of Christ, right? The righteousness of Christ. And He delights in rewarding us. He delights in saving us. He delights in hearing us. And so as we read this, and as you read the Psalms, there's oftentimes this happens, and you must come to a point where we confess, first of all, and that is not true of me, 
even on my best days. But Father, thank you for making this true of me in Jesus. And God then delights in our obedience, right? He sees us in, through the eyes of Christ, and he delights in our obedience. And so the rest of the psalm, I think, calls us to then reflect on this. And um, we're going to see, uh, calls us to meditate on the work of God that he did. And so we see God's work. You see that he was a warrior fighting for us. He rescued us, pulled us out because he delights in doing that. He rewards us. And the rest of the psalm is just meditating on the work of God that God did. And also the work that he does in us. Not only outside of us and saving us, but actually transforming us. And so um, part three here, we're going to start in verse 25. See that we're called to meditate and act through his response. So his response motivates us to meditate and act. So David was just saved and rewarded and uh, strengthened, right? And so now we read in 25, with the faithful, he's just meditating on God's character here. With the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. With the blameless, you prove yourself blameless. With the pure, you prove yourself pure. With the crooked, you prove yourself shrewd. For you rescue and oppress people, but you humble those with haughty eyes. Lord, you light my lamp. My God illuminates my darkness. With you, I can attack a barricade, and with my God, I can leap over a wall. God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock? Only our God. So here, the response now is meditation. He's meditating first on the character of God, who he is, what he's done. And, uh, you know, he says, well, God, with the faithful, you're proving yourself faithful. Um, And, of course, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about a heart that trusts God in faith, right? Um, We're blameless only because of the work of Christ. With the pure, you prove yourself pure, right? And it's only because of the purity of the Messiah. It's only because of the blamelessness of the Messiah that we are rewarded that we receive this, right? Um, and ultimately, though, what does he say about the, the, that next line? For with the crooked, you prove yourself shrewd. And it's just awareness that um, the only way we can say that we're faithful, blameless, pure is because of Jesus. And if we're not in Christ, then there is going to be uh, a, a punishment, right? There is going to be uh, the, the saving work of God is not for us. You humble those with haughty eyes, right? Those are the people that God will humble. And someone with haughty eyes is someone who thinks they're better, right? Who isn't dependent. Which is the whole point of this psalm is to say, call out to God because you need him. You want him on your team. You want him defending you. You want him rescuing you. You need him. But if, you have, if, you're, if you're pride, right? If you're haughty, that is not going to go well for you. It's only by faith in the Messiah that we receive this rescue, that we receive this righteousness, that we receive this blamelessness. So those who say they don't need him are the ones who are humbled. So we need to confess our neediness of God in order to receive this rescue. Those are the kinds of people that God rescues, the oppressed people, the people who need God, who cry out to him. And so that's, this is so important as we think about 
uh, our salvation and meditate on the gospel. We don't want to just jump to the effects of it or what we are supposed to do. We want to meditate now on God's character. And that's what David's doing here, meditating on God's character. What has God done for me? Who is he? He is a rock. He is strong. He is perfect. He is pure. He is a shield. Who is beside the Lord? No one. This kind of meditation bolsters our faith to say, this is the kind of God that's worth trusting. This is the kind of God that's worth crying out to and taking refuge in. No other, no other rock, no other fortress that we might try to, to, to substitute as an idol. He is the only one worthy. So we begin the meditation on God and his character. And as we continue on, we see now meditation on God empowering and strengthening him. So it's God's character and then God's actual strengthening, empowering of him. And so verse uh, 32, we read, God, he clothes me with strength. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He sets me securely on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me. Your humility exalts me. You make a spacious place beneath me for my steps, and my ankles do not give way. Do you see the shift? David isn't like it was back in uh, verse 4, 5, and 6, you know, I'm, the ropes were wrapped around me, the destruction's everywhere, I'm, I'm caught in a snare, I, I'm in distress, right? Here we have, I mean, David having a shield, bending a bow of bronze, like, or being strong. As he has meditated on the work of God, as he has come through this, cried out to God for help, meditated on God's work, he is now strong, right? We see this shift. He's not helpless anymore. He is empowered, and it's not in his own strength, right? It's the strength and the work of God in his life, right? We see this um, idea, you make my feet like the feet of the deer, setting me securely on the heights. Have you ever been to Israel and seen an ibex, those little like goat deer things that can climb almost on a vertical wall because just the way their hooves are? That's the idea. Um, he, they, they can negotiate rugged terrain, um, and uh, all the difficulties of life, we're now stru- strengthened by the work of God in us to navigate that. So we see security, we see strength, um, and enablement, verse 34, to fight. Training our hands for war, right? Being strong, strengthened to actually engage. Um, unlike before, where we couldn't do anything, now David is, is strengthened. Um, he's enabled to fight. And so the... Per- so again, the progression of the psalm, right? Dependency, weakness, crying out to God. But then God rescues, and God's actions are meditated on. David's faith is strengthened. Blessing is received by the God who graciously gives good gifts. And David is changed. And I think there's a similar pattern for us. You know, in our de- dependency on God, finding refuge in Him, um, he strengthens us to do the work of his kingdom, right? So uh, it's not just that we just find refuge in God and hide. As we take refuge in him, we're strengthened and given the ability to, to work, right? Work for his kingdom. Think of Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is working in you both to will and to do 
according to his good work, his good purpose. And so, again, we just don't go to God and sit in the refuge. As, and it t- it's a process, right? And he t- it takes time often to be strengthened, to receive the truth, to be strengthened, to act for his kingdom and for his glory. But as we meditate on this, as we go to him for refuge, we're sent out as we're st- after we're strengthened. And that is um, the work of God in our lives that we see. And we see this as an example here in, in, David's, in, David's, um, in David's life. And so... As we sit here in our refuge, we receive strength. We're empowered to act on behalf of our king. And this is this, and we see this in the next part, starting in verse 37. I pursue my enemies and I overtake them. I don't turn back until they are wiped out. I crush them and they cannot get up. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before me. I annihilate those who hate me. They cry for help, but there's no one to save them. They cry to the Lord. He doesn't answer them. I pulverize them like the dust before the wind. I trampled them like mud in the streets. All right. So now, now David, he's the one dusting everybody up, right? He's the one fighting. He's the one who ha- fighting through God's strength. You know, so in the context, in the, in, in the context of the Davidic covenant and God promising to use David to uh, to be his instrument, to be his tool. And also, of course, um, in, the, in the covenant with Abraham, the promise that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. There was physical, literal uh, punishment through battle and war that God would work through David, work through Israel to punish the nations. And David is now the one who's, he's come down, he's been strengthened by God for crying out for help, and then is able to pursue his enemies, to defeat them. And so the progression, in, in the, again, in, in my mind, I just imagine uh, a weak person, uh, David weak, crying for help, and God pulling him out and is rescued valiantly, brilliantly, beautifully, um, taken to a refuge where he's uh, like a hospital, like where he's healed and clothed and given blessing and purpose and identity. And he just, as, as he's meditating on the beauty of his rescue, as he's meditating on the beauty of his salvation, there's this strength that just empowers him to then go and be trained and to, and to fight and to go and go out again and do the work of his king. So again, when we're talking about enemies. I just want to remind you, like, who are our enemies? <laughs> we think of people really quick. As, as I said that, I'm sure there's like a person that probably came to your mind, right? Whether it's the, the coworker, politician, hopefully not your spouse or uh, your kids or your parents, but that, that, I mean, that those relationships can often be difficult, right? I don't want to minimize that. Um, there, there are times where uh, people and the, the things people do are overwhelming us and frustrating us. But as we read this through the eyes of the, of the New Testament, and again, I've already mentioned Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of darkness. Um, Paul says it a little bit differently. I really like this, this passage in 2 Corinthians 10, 3. Although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. 
not literal buildings, right? The strongholds in us, the strongholds of lies in others. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's our battle, right? Taking every thought captive. It's not, it's not the uh, fighting against people. It's not, you know, the, there, are, there are certain things we're called to engage in. But of course, the exact way that David engaged his enemies is going to look a lot different because of the context of the covenant, the context of history where he finds himself in. For us, Paul says, although we live in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. And so, you know, I think about that. I think about the battle that we're called to and actually empowered to fight. The battle for our hearts, right? Take the log out of our own eye before we point it at someone else, right? Take our thoughts captive, our hateful thoughts, the things that we imagine, the things that are standing as proud things that are raised against the knowledge and truth of God in us. That's our, that's our battle. And then to speak the truth in love, to help others come around to, to making war, waging war against those things, taking those thoughts captive. The battle for our hearts and minds, that's what the enemy is attacking the hearts and minds of, your, of you first, that's your first responsibility, and for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So do you believe that you've been empowered by God? Right? Do you believe that? Do you believe that we are powerful through God for the demolition of these kinds of strongholds? Uh, he says in First uh, Timothy, you haven't been given a spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. Do we believe that that's actually true of us? Sometimes I, I think it's, um, if we really believe that, we'd act a lot differently, right? It's true of us because of Christ. The warrior king coming down to defeat our enemies. The rescuing Lord save us from our own sin and death. To reward us, to give us his righteousness that we didn't deserve. We are now empowered. We have that power to fight our greatest enemies. Sin. To, to wage war against the the lies that we believe. And uh, it's a risk. It's a risk to believe that we're powerful, right? Because if you really believe it, then you've got, you got to do something about it, right? If that power is available to you, you should do something. And sometimes we don't want to, right? Sometimes we want to leave our enemies just uh, camping out in our hearts, and it's fine, and we're okay with that. We need to see the dire circumstances that we're in because of sin and and act on that. Ask for help. Be empowered by Christ. We're okay often too, time, too often. I, and I know this for me. You know, I, I was just struggling with it this week. And this passage reminds me, reminded me often to cry out for, to help, for help. To recognize that I am powerful through God in Christ. To act and to say no. I'm not a victim of my sin. I don't have to just lay around and, and just wallow in it, right? There is power in the cross. There is power in faith and hope. And it costs us greatly to stay in that spirit of weakness, of not asking for help. What is it costing you? What is it costing you to, to stay and to not act? What is it costing you to not ask for help? What is it costing you to live in that state of smallness and, and weakness and not owning the reality that we are made powerful in Christ? think if we thought about it a lot, it would, it would humble us. It costs us a lot relationally with others. It costs us a lot relationally with God. 
to not think that we're, we're, we're powerful in Christ. And uh, the king calls us out of that smallness and that immaturity because he delights in saving us. He delights in us to call us out, to get help, to get the power we need through him. And when we do, when we're humble before him, as James says, humble yourself before the Lord, you will be exalted. You see the similar pattern, been humbled. And now in verse 43, we read, you have freed me from the feuds among the people. You have appointed me the head of nations. Of course, David being the king, a people I had not known serve me. Foreigners submit to me, cringing. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their fortifications. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. The God of my salvation is exalted. God, he grants me vengeance. He subdues peoples under me. He frees me from my enemies. You exalt me above my adversaries. You rescue me from violent men. The pattern of humility has led to rescue, meditation on God, empowerment, and now exaltation. And for David, that looked like stepping in to the kingship that he was promised by God, right? And so, of course, that's not going to be uh, any of us, right? We, that's not our context. Um, however, there is something we're each called to. There is a lowercase r realm and, and, and kingdom, lowercase k kingdom, that we are called to steward as being part of the image of God, being made in the image of God. A key aspect of that is to be um, a steward of creation, to be a steward of our realm, the, the, the relationships and the people. And for some of us, it's going to be smaller, you know, for you know, teenagers and for parents, it gets bigger. And, and as we work and as, you know, various spheres of influence that we're called to. Um, but David gives all the glory to God for exalting him and calling him into this. And that's our job. That's our call as well. Um, and so we're not going to be ruling over people. This isn't, but we are co-heirs with Christ, right? That we are called to, uh, for the sake of the ultimate kingdom, to steward what God's given us. And we see that uh, in acting in accordance with the call to King Jesus to give him glory, um, we rejoice in our victories over sin. We recognize that God was the one who did that. And our exaltation, our uh, the exaltation is directly linked with the true king, right, who actually defeated death, defeated sin, and is exalted to the highest place that every knee will bow. And so we read in Colossians, for example, our life is hid with Christ on high. And so there's this sense in which when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he strengthens us, he exalts us, he gives us uh, strength. And so, of course, our response is verse 46, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Right? We rejoice and praise God for what he's done in our lives. Uh, we cannot take any credit for it because remember our state in the beginning. We're weak. We're going to die. We need help. We, we are desperate. Um, and so the ultimate response is thankfulness. The ultimate response is praise and worship. And we see that really at the last two verses there. We'll end here. Verse 49, therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord. I will sing praises about your name. He gives great victories to his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed. The word there, anointed, is Messiah, right? He, to David and his descendants forever. As we praise, as we receive this, the praise, the thankfulness, not just praise, uh, but the praise that's shaped by thankful hearts, recognizing where we've been, what we've been through, what we've needed, the... Uh, 
amazing amount of salvation that we needed, the beauty of God's salvation that has brought us to this point, has taken us from humility and certain death to exaltation with Christ, we respond with thankfulness. It's the unavoidable response. A life of worship that's empowered by God's power and rescue, right? It's what we're called to. And notice there, it involves a, a witnessing element there as well, right? So Paul quotes from verse, verse 49 in Romans 15. In Romans 15, verse 9, he quotes Psalm 18, 49, uh, to remind the Romans that God glorifies himself in drawing Gentiles, right? We see, I will give thanks to you among the nations. Well, so what God's done for me just doesn't stay with just me. And Paul is pointing to the fact that the nations will come as we witness to the world to submit to the ultimate King Jesus. He draws all people, Jews and Gentiles, to himself under the Lordship of Christ. And so therefore the call is really to share this truth with the Lord, to glorify God with one voice. To recognize that Jesus is the King, ruling over the nations, not by the sword, but by the power of his resurrection, by his defeat of the deepest, darkest enemies that we could ever imagine. And we then are his ambassadors to the nations to share, to tell others about this. To, empowered by his rescue, empowered by his power to fight the forces of evil, to take those thoughts captive, to fight the enemy, to say no, to push back the powers of evil in our hearts and, and, and calling our brothers and sisters to do the same. And so, again, the main point, God hears us, he rescues us, and unites us to the victory of the king. Let's just own the fact, as we close just thinking about this, own the fact that we are in trouble often, right? We need a lot of help. And we need to ask for it. And God responds, and he will respond in beautiful ways. He's attentive to hear. He is powerful to save you from the temptations that seem overwhelming, that seem like you have no hope. Because really, in reality, by yourself, we don't. Our enemies, as David said, too strong. We can't do it on our own. We need help. And as he saves us, he brings us to his refuge. He empowers us to risk believing that you have also been given power to fight. You've been given uh, victory in the victory of the king. And then you're called to witness to the world for his namesake. So as we think about these things, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and thankfulness. Father, we, we thank you for your work in us, uh, through us, despite ourselves. We thank you that you delight to save us, that your love pursued us and follows us, uh, even when we don't deserve it. Surprisingly, it rewards us and gives us your righteousness. It gives us new hearts. It gives us a, a new life where we can praise you. Our lives were ruined, certain death outside of you. Yet your grace pursued us and gave us new life in Christ. Father, I pray for each one here who is in Christ to remember that they have the power by the Holy Spirit to say no to sin, to say, to fight the enemies, the lies of Satan. And we step into that strength for your glory. And because of what you've done for us, may we be a witness to the world. May we point others to the saving, beautiful work of the Lord. For those who do not know you, may they be compelled by this image of your rescue, to say, I need that. I need rescue. My plight is dire. I am in certain peril. Sin is, is powerful and will drag us down without you. So we pray that you would do this work in each individual this morning. 
that you would do it for your glory, that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name, amen.